as we speak, people in the city of Hamadan that is supposed to be considered a water-rich area are thirsty. They don't have water in their taps. And the dam near the city has dried up. The government wants to transfer water that's contaminated by arsenic from about 100 miles away. Anti-government demonstrations have once again swept through Iran, this time sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman. She died in police custody after allegedly violating Iran's strict headscarf law. The protests are directed at the Ayatollah's morality laws and the police enforcing them. It's not the only time in recent years Iranian people have taken to the streets. That's the sound of a protest last year in Isfahan, Iran. Thousands of Iranian farmers and their supporters rallied there on the bed of a barren river, protesting chronic water mismanagement by the Iranian government. At least eight people were killed in water protests like this one, as the driest conditions in 53 years pummeled a country already in a severe water crisis. None of this is new to Nick Kosar. He first started raising the alarm about the state of Iran's water decades ago. That got him in trouble with the regime, forcing him to leave his home country. Nick now lives in Washington, D.C. He's kept up his advocacy work he produces and hosts a Persian show about water shortages called Abingan. We sat down with Nick earlier this fall. Welcome to What About Water, Nick. Thanks, Jay, for having me. It's a real pleasure. So, Nick, those, those angry farmers that we heard in the protest, what happened to them? Some of them were summoned by the security forces. Some of them uh, spent a few hours or even days in prison. And most of them still do not have the water they were promised. Can you take us back to your life in Iran? Do you notice that there were big water issues in your country? It has mostly something to do with my dad. When we went back to Iran from the States in 1976, after my dad got his PhD at Oregon State, he started thinking more and more about ways to control flood water. He had learned something about flood water spreading in Australia, but he wanted to use the traditional ways and means of controlling flood water in different parts of Iran and recharge the aquifer. So he started this project in the province of Fars a few months after the revolution. He actually escaped from Tehran because they wanted to give him a high-ranking government position, and he didn't want anything to do with the cabinet. He wanted to be in the field. 
So he moved to southern Iran and he started this flood water spreading project. And then it worked out very well for the people. Later, he moved to another place about 100 miles southeast of Shiraz. And it was actually an arid zone. And many people had migrated from that area because of loss of water in the aquifer and then the dryness and the hotness. But after they started this project, everything changed and many people actually moved back. You could see a reverse migration in that area. And this uh, research actually was supposed to be considered a way and means to get rid of the bad situation in dry zones where we had alluvium and also had flash floods. The government officials had fallen in love with major dams and they wanted to build bigger and bigger dams. And because of those dams, many lakes, marshes, and aquifers dried up in a very short period of time. So those policies destructed most of our water resources and made one big problem that we have is how we use the water in the country and mostly for agriculture without understanding the amount of water that we're using. And because the Iranian leaders wanted the country to become self-sufficient in food production, they encouraged the farmers to use whatever water they have in, in their reach. And gradually, this emptied a lot of aquifers all around the country. So I could see what was happening. I connected the dots. And so when I was studying geology, I used to also draw cartoons. And I became a cartoonist. But wait a minute. You became a cartoonist? A professional cartoonist. I started drawing cartoons when I was an undergrad student. And I drew the caricatures of my professors and a bunch of those reached out somehow to a popular uh, satirical magazine and they hired me. <laughs> they hired a geologist. That was funny. And then two years after that, I was hired as an editorial cartoonist by Iran's top newspaper. So I started using cartoons to criticize uh, policies and politics. But in Iran, it's really hard to criticize major policies because they're made by the Ayatollahs. And the Ayatollahs are enjoying a certain amount of impunity and immunity. And in year 2000, I drew a cartoon that actually was considered something that had undermined national security. I had hit a nerve because the Ayatollah had claimed that a CIA operative was in Tehran with a big suitcase full of U.S. dollars to bribe Iranian journalists against Islam. So I just made fun of him shedding crocodile tears. And his name rhymed with the name of crocodile. His last name was Mesbah and crocodile in Persian is Temsah. So Temsah and Mesbah rhymed and people got the point. I was sent to prison and people were ch chanting for my death. Of course, not all people, the clergymen. And for that reason, I went to the Avin prison. That's the most notorious prison in the Middle East. A very short while, but it wasn't that pleasant. But to remember, I always wear this Lacoste polo shirt because of the crocodile it has. So <laughs> crocodile is part of my life. I'm I'm sponsoring uh, Lacoste. They're not. You know, in solidarity, I wish I had known. I could have worn a nice that shirt too. Oh, thank so. you. And I heard that more than 2 million copies of that newspaper cartoon were made by individuals in just a few days after that. So that was funny. 
So, but I mean, you you are also trying to communicate to the regime, right? You're not necessarily always criticizing. You've gone directly to the regime to warn them about water issues. What what brought you there? When I started writing those op-eds about water issues, I wanted to warn the Ministry of Energy and the government of its policies that putting too much money in the building dams and water allocation schemes, because they're mostly interbasin water diversions. And the harm that those projects bring to the original basin are humongous, and the water rights are being stolen. The sad thing is that, look, if you go to the history of aquifer management, you read about canots, the system, the underground aqueducts. But the, unlike aqueducts, they, they are very, very sustainable. We have canots that are still functioning after thousands of years in different parts of the country. But what they did was they poured all the money in construction firms. And the other thing is that they started over-exploiting aquifers all around the country for the sake of agriculture and producing more grains and making the supreme leader happy. So this was a, a recipe for disaster. I had the platform, the media, to raise awareness about this. Many people didn't have it. So I wanted to take advantage of my situation. And I knew that, okay, people knew me as a cartoonist. So I wanted to be known as somebody that could also talk about other factors as well. And I hit a nerve. And in 2001, a number of my op-eds caught the eyes of the Iranian president, then President Khatami, and I was summoned to his office. <laughs> a short while after that, I, I was being censored and they didn't publish anything from me. So, so was this, uh, was it the cartoon that was, you know, I know that you got in trouble and you realized you had to leave the, uh, leave the country. Was it the cartoons? Was it the op-ed? What was the final straw that got you into trouble and made you realize you had to get the heck out? Uh, I think a combination of both, because uh, the Iranian government was actually in partnership with the Revolutionary Guards in building dams, because the major firm that's building dams in the country is Khatam al Construction Headquarters. That's part of the Revolutionary Guards. And the Ministry of Energy is actually pouring money into their hands. So one, I had messed up with the Ayatollahs. Two, I was messing up with this new partnership of the reformists. That's the funny thing. The, the people who call themselves reformists were actually destroying Iran's water resources. So at one point, I felt that, look, I'm expendable. And when, I, when my name was on a list of people who were supposed to be assassinated, and also I had received a letter, they had left that letter under my seat at Iran's press association, and it said that Nikai and Kosar had to be executed. Okay, wait, that wait, was... wait. Let's just let's, let's stop for a second. So you're on yeah. a list that says you should be assassinated. You're getting a person yeah, executed. executed. You're getting a personal letter that says what? Like there's a fatwa on this guy. Yeah. Right? Uh I'd, I'd pretty much um, hit the road quickly. I, I did, but did? it wasn't that easy. Because, because look, for Iranians, getting a visa to leave the country is not that easy. First of all, we didn't have a U.S. embassy in Iran since 1979 functioning. Two, many countries do not hand Iranians visa easily. So it takes a lot of elements so they would actually give you a visa. 
I was lucky that I was invited by the Canadian Cartoonists Association to give a speech in Quebec City, and that helped me a lot. But I wasn't able to take my wife and daughter or bring my wife and daughter to Canada. So it took me four years to see oh my, my wife and daughter again. That's, that's absolutely terrible. I'm sorry you had to go through all that. Uh, these are amazing, amazing stories. I've heard similar stories from from some of your Iranian colleagues, and uh, you know, I've I've followed a similar path in terms of writing opinion pieces and and being very outspoken, and I haven't ended up in in jail. I got in trouble once or twice when I was at NASA, but nothing like nothing like what you have experienced. So you know, I have to know, Nick, why do you keep doing this? Right. Or why would why did you continue to do this when it was so risky and actually may still be risky for you in the United States? <laughs> I don't know. Being nuts. Yeah, there's that. Possibly. There's that. Yeah. No, no. I mean, really, tell me why. What keeps you what keeps you doing it? Look, I love telling people that they're not seeing the whole picture. I wanted to uh, use cartooning as a platform to educate people, not that I'm better than them. But I think I understand some stuff and I don't fall into these political traps. So I like what I was doing. And that's really, really important work. So I know you were really close to your father, as you told us earlier. He was such a big part of your life. You know, protecting freshwater was such a, a passion. So not only were you not able to see your wife and family for four years, but I mean, when was the last time you saw your dad? In the last 20 years, I've just seen him for three days in France, and that was in 2012, and under very weird circumstances, because we weren't supposed to be seen by anybody else because government officials or government spooks could have caused problems for him. And uh, now he's back, but of course he's ill, and I don't think they want to bother an 86-year-old individual who's suffering from cancer. So, Right. So yeah, he's he's probably being left alone, but it's really tragic that you know you've basically been exiled or escaped to protect your life because you're a passionate environmentalist. It's uh it's an honor actually to be an environmentalist in a way, but the thing is I love my country, I love my people, and I love the future generations who haven't been able to destroy our country as the previous generations have. So I, I agree with you. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to call yourself an environmentalist. I always feel privileged to be able to work with the satellite data that, that I see. And I think if we, you know, we have to do our best to communicate and get the next generation prepared uh, and how we use technology to communicate. You've continued to expose water mismanagement in Iran and broadcast to Iranian citizens with your show. Can you tell us about it? We have used different platforms such as Telegram, WhatsApp, even Twitter and Skype, whatever means possible to receive information from within the country and get video files or even written documents that we have been able to verify. It's not that easy to verify a lot of reports because many of the people who are sending them do not have faces and we don't know many of them, although we're thankful, but we have to double check all of them. So I usually send back a number of these documents to experts inside Iran. They are helping us as volunteers, and that's beautiful. Many of them are actually working for the government, or they're 
professors, government officials, journalists, experts, consultants, and they've reviewed these documents and then check if they're real or unreal. We could rely on them or not. And mostly these days, people are sending us real material. As we speak, people in the city of Hamadan, that is supposed to be considered a water-rich area, are thirsty. They don't have water in their taps. And the dam near the city has dried up. The government wants to transfer water that's contaminated by arsenic from about 100 miles away from another basin. So you see, uh, we have to tell these things to the public that, okay, if you're getting water, you have to be aware of the quality of that water because we have reports saying that there's some levels of arsenic in that water and and other heavy metals. So it sounds crazy, but it's real. It's happening right now. Yeah, it's it's really... um, it, it does sound surreal. And I'm curious about these people who are basically acting as, you know, your informants, right, your sources. Is this a safe vehicle for them to communicate with you if they're using Twitter or WhatsApp or whatever? So far, so good. A couple of years ago, one of our sources was arrested, but they couldn't find anything to actually put him in jail. He was just arrested for a few days and they had to leave him alone. But the thing is, right now, even members of the security agencies are somehow feeling the heat for the problems that have been created by the regime. They are thirsty as well. They need to wash themselves after going to the toilet. And when there's not enough water, they cannot just use stones to go back to the Stone Age. No. So I'm curious, Nick, Tell me about Abangan and who you're trying to reach. So Ab means water, Ban means guardian. So Abangan was the festivity to honor the guardian angel of water in ancient Persia. So uh, we started Abangan in 2015, and it was, let's say, a weekly show. But after a while, we produced two shows a week. What we wanted to do was to actually bring the issue of water to people's table. And so they would talk about it inside the country Uh, because many people were enjoying very cheap tap water. They didn't understand what was happening in the countryside and why many farmers were forced to migrate from rural areas to city margins. The main objective was to educate the people who weren't thinking about water or didn't take water seriously. We mentioned a few things, one or two things to our audiences that, look, if you're enjoying, let's say, sufficient water, it's not going to be like this in the near future. Understand that we're having less and less rain, snow, and also bad agricultural policies and bad water management policies are going to cause major problems for different parts of the country. And when in 2000. 17 in actually December 2017 there was an uprising and people were killed in areas that had suffered from water poverty or water tension water stress i pointed out that look many people had lost their jobs because of lack of water lack of sufficient water they didn't have enough water for farming so 
farmers had lost their jobs. They were moving to different areas. And there were also herders. There were villagers in different areas that were suffering because of this. People lose their water and they lose their lands. They have nothing else to lose. And these are the first people to fight against the system, forces. I just, I, I simply uh, hate hearing these stories. What's your hope for people in Iran and, and for their water future? I think we need a democratic system. We don't have water democracy, if, if you can call it. We don't have a democratic water management system. The top-down decision-making process is somehow enforced on different populations and communities, and people don't have a say. Stakeholders don't have a say. The leaders decide to build a dam, to build a water allocation scheme, and they do it, and they just want to cut the ribbon with their scissors and say what a great job they've done. The Iranian presidents are famous for that. They love dams. Dams are too photogenic for them, and they they love to be taking pictures over there. Same, same. That's the yeah. same everywhere, right? It's it's politically preferable to build something big and shiny and have a legacy and show your constituency that you're doing something great when really the more important thing might be to conserve more water or to be more efficient in agriculture and things that don't actually get seen. You cannot show shiny. groundwater, but you can show the you reservoir. And you know, you can't show you can't show the buried drip irrigation yes. lines either because they're buried, but they are super important. Uh, I want to wrap it up uh by asking you about the importance of of shows like yours and other film and media when it comes to getting the message out and solving our water issues, not just in Iran, but but globally? I can talk about my own experience. The The good thing about it was that after we started airing the show, um, different TV channels started contacting me and asking me to go on their news bulletins or giving them commentaries about what was happening. And this was a better way to reach out to bigger audiences. Look, like I respect those TV channels that are airing our shows, but it's it's not a big chunk of the Iranian population. But when I go on, let's say, BBC Persian, or I go on Iran International TV, I know millions are watching. So even three minutes of airtime on one of those TV channels gives us a platform to raise awareness. And there are days that I have to be on different channels four or five times. So I think it's really important to use technology to reach out to people and try to empower them because it's knowledge is power. And when you don't have enough knowledge to think about something, to talk about something, you're powerless. So I think that's that's really important. Well, it sounds like you are reaching millions and millions of people. So thank you so much for joining us today, Nick. Oh, my, my pleasure. Nick Kosar is the host and producer of an award-winning weekly show on water shortages in Iran called Avangan.
Technology and media are a huge part of our lives. That's what Daniel Harrich is betting on. He's a German filmmaker who released a star-studded feature film about water earlier this year. And he recently released a documentary version of the feature film and then a three-part documentary series called Unser Wasser, which means Our Water. That's had over 40 million views in Germany. I'm really fortunate to have been featured in them and to have spent a couple of weeks last summer working with Daniel and his father, Walter, traveling along the Colorado River. My name is Daniel Herridge. I'm an investigative filmmaker based in Munich, Germany. We've been focusing over the last couple of years on the combination of using star-studded feature films combined with documentaries and radio podcasts and non-fiction programming in order to yeah, change reality, to have the most uh, political impact for good. Over the week following the initial premiere, our film, uh, Till the Last Drop, was uh, debated twice in Parliament. So you've got all these political leaders watching the star-studded feature film, debating about the future of water. So you, you got to imagine the U.S. Congress or the Canadian assemblies debating about this you know, scientific project, this uh, feature film, trying to decide on future legislations and asking for working groups. And so it, it immediately made uh, political waves. We actually have uh, right now the data that we reached with that programming, over 40 million, that's half of our population. We had one case in northern Germany, um, in, in Grüneburg, where Coca-Cola, where Coke actually tried to get new uh, permissions, new water extraction rights. And I would say that our feature film was a big part of them not getting that permission or them retracting the application for the permission. You can see that uh, the communication is working. You can see that the audience is striving for insights about water. And looking back at, uh, you know, traveling with Jay through the United States, we knew that we were doing something really important together. And we knew that, you know, what we're doing here is something that will have impact. And I think that this only works if, you know, science and media communicate and exchange information and, you know, push it for the good. Daniel Harrich created the three-part documentary, Our Water, for the German public television network, ARD. More recently, Deutsche Walle has translated them into Spanish, English, and Arabic. And collectively, they now have over three and a half million views. We've thrown those links into our show notes. Are your questions about water keeping you up at night? Getting tired of having to look up answers on Google? If this sounds like you, you might need Jay. Submit your questions for him to ideas at whataboutwater.org. Email us today, and you might just be featured in our next episode. That's ideas at whataboutwater.org. Also over the summer, and this was very cool, I got a call to consult on a water segment for an episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. That's the most important thing. 
to know about groundwater is that it's not totally independent of surface water at all. These are often part of one intertwined hydrological system, so when you pump groundwater, it can ultimately dry up rivers. The connection between groundwater and surface water is one of those alarming connections that we just choose to forget. You know, like the one between Elizabeth Moss and Scientology. It's so much easier just not to really think about it. <laughs> wow. If you haven't caught that water episode from last week tonight, it aired back in June. So far, it has over 5 million views on YouTube. We put that link in our show notes as well. Find it there. And please share it with a friend. Well, that's it for this episode of What About Water? We record and produce this podcast on Treaty 6 territory, the homeland of First Nations and Métis people. What About Water is a collaboration between the Walrus Lab and the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. podcast is a production of Cascade Communications. Our audio engineer is Wayne Giesbrecht. Our producer is Aaron Stevens. Our fact checker is Taisha Gerb. The crew at GIWS is Mark Ferguson, Sean Ahmed, Fred Rebin, Andrea Rowe, and Jesse Widow. I'm Jay Familietti. Thanks for listening.